Good evening. Welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible study here at Calvary Baptist Church. I am the teaching pastor, Pastor Stephen. We are located in Phillipsburg, Kansas. We're grateful for your attendance and following our studies and being a part of our outreach ministry, which is equipping you to know the scripture. And that is our hope, that as you continue to uh, subscribe and listen to our uh, online messages, you would be equipped uh, to know the word. And before we study 1 Timothy chapter 2, I want to mention that if you are listening online, if you are subscribing to our podcast, Spotify, Apple, YouTube, whatever, we, we do not want to replace the local church. And I want to make that clear. We, we are not your local church. Uh, you are commanded by God uh, to be a part of a local church, to be part of a local body. If you would like to join our church, we would love to have you. We would receive you and you would be Blessed by being a part of our congregation, and I'm sure our congregation would be blessed by having you. But you need to find a local church. Online church is not church. Online worship is not worship. The online preacher is not your pastor. You need to find a local body, and I hope that you do. Okay, we're going to study this evening 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Uh, Paul says in verse 1, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. This section begins with the words, first of all. First of all, what, Paul? In chapter 1, Paul uh, discusses uh, Timothy's charge of removing false teachers, removing false doctrine out of the local church. Paul commands Timothy to set up the true religion in the place of the false religion that was in Ephesus. And in order to set up the true religion, once the false religion is removed, in order to set up the true religion, first of all, prayer is called for. Prayer is, first of all, it is of first importance. Why? Why is prayer of first importance? Because 
Prayer, and I hate to use cliches, right? You listen to pastors, you listen to preachers online and on television, they use cliches. I hate using them because I don't want to be lumped in with those televangelists that just preach for money and and preach for your money. Uh, But it is true. Prayer does unlock the key to the Christian life. Prayer unlocks the key. It, it, is, it is prayer leads to one of the most important things about the Christian life. And in this time, uh, during our sanctification, it's obedience. All right? Justification by faith is important. But once we've been justified by faith, obedience is the next step. It is the step that is of most importance in our life. Obedience to God is what faith produces. If you don't have obedience, you don't have saving faith. And if you don't have saving faith, you don't have the Christian faith. And so there is a natural and logical flow, a steps of, of, uh, of the order of the Christian life. God calls you, he, well, first he elects you before the foundation of the world, then at some point in your life he calls you, you hear the gospel, you are justified, you're adopted, you're converted, you have saving faith, you're declared to be righteous, and once those instantaneous acts are accomplished in your life, then you have the process of sanctification, which involves obedience. It's the Holy Spirit working out the good that he has planted in you. He's working it out in your life. So if you don't have obedience, you don't have faith, because faith leads to obedience, and obedience justifies your faith. What I mean by that is obedience proves whether or not you are a Christian. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. He says, my commandments to you are not burdensome. Obedience, in short, is godliness. And without godliness, no one will see the Lord. And prayer elicits, inspires, induces, whatever whatever word you want to use. Prayer prompts godliness. Prayer is the communication that you have with God. And it's the communication that the Spirit of God has with you. We call out for God's help. You acknowledge what you need. And of most importance, we need godliness. For the Christians in the first century... Persecution by the governing authorities was a hindrance to godliness. In verses 1 through 4, Paul says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? So that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. According to Paul, The first step for Timothy to build the church 
of laying a blueprint of the Christian faith is praying that those who are in high positions would allow them to live a godly life. It's of first importance. The government, people who are in authority over us, are usually the people that are often left out of our prayers. Or we, or we just don't devote much time to them in prayer. Real quick, those who are listening, how often did, have you mentioned the president, vice president, congress, state officials, city officials, local law enforcement in your prayers today? Those of you who have prayed today, maybe you got up this morning, you read and you prayed. Uh, this afternoon during lunch, you prayed. Sitting in the office or at work, you say quick prayers. How often today did you pray for those who are in high positions, positions of authority? And compare that to the number of times that you've prayed for yourself, you prayed for your spouse, your children, your friends. There's a huge discrepancy, isn't it? When Paul says, first of all, we should pray for those in high positions. Why? Specifically, for what reasons? So that the church can live a quiet, dignified, and godly life. Praying for those who are in authority uh, to allow the church to fulfill their mandate by God presupposes that uh, they're capable of doing so, right? I mean, if, if the government, if people who are in authority, if kings, presidents, whoever in authority, if we are to pray that they are uh, to allow us to live a godly life, that presupposes the fact that they're capable of doing so. Because if they were not capable, Paul would have said, don't waste your time praying for them. But it is possible, right? It is reasonable for those who are in authority to allow the church to live a life that God requires us to live. It's not asking too much. From what we know of Scripture, what is the purpose of our local government, of our state government or federal government, whatever? Is their purpose to interfere with the church's mission? Absolutely not. Is the government's purpose to govern the church? No. The government's purpose, those who are in high authority, their purpose is to protect those who obey God. That's their job. They are to punish evildoers. God did not ordain government to interfere with worship. He did not ordain government to legislate worship. He ordained government to protect and to preserve the worship. By the middle of the first century, persecution from those in authority was already advanced. We don't have to look no further than the book of Acts, the letters of the apostles in the New Testament, the apostle Peter uh, in writing 1 Peter, he addresses the recipients of the letter as the elect exiles. Those are the Christians who have been dispersed from their homes because of persecution, 
in the letter of James, the Lord's brother, he addresses the church's sufferings and he writes that we should expect persecution from governing authorities. Count it all joy, brothers, when you fall into various trials. Uh, the apostle Peter in his letter says that we shouldn't think suffering uh, uh, for doing good is, is some novel idea. It, it shouldn't be. It, we should expect it because of how corrupt the world is, how wicked wickedness has become. The Apostle Paul, before becoming the Apostle Paul, was a persecutor of the church. In fact, if you go back and read the middle of the book of Acts, that we can attribute the expansion of the church outside of Jerusalem because of Paul's persecution. Everyone but the apostles left Jerusalem. I mean, we have stories of Philip leaving Jerusalem and the church expanding outside of Palestine because of the persecution that the former Saul of Tarsus, now the Apostle Paul, led. But in all of these instances, the governing authorities were right in the middle of the persecution. The Apostle Paul, before again, before becoming the Apostle Paul, went to the chief priest, the leaders of the Jews, to seek letters from them to arrest men and women and children who were in Damascus calling upon the name of God, the name of Christ. Later in the book of Acts, we're studying it right now in a Sunday 11 o'clock service. The Apostle Paul is being persecuted by Roman officials. Festus, Felix, King Agrippa, the Roman Tribune, Claudius Lysias. He's executed by the Emperor Nero in the middle 60s AD of the first century. But this is not the way God ordained the government. Uh, they are acting contrary to their purpose. God ordained the government to be his avengers, not his church's nemesis. And this is why the Apostle Paul gives Timothy the charge, first of all, to pray for the local authorities, to pray for the state authorities, to pray for kings and those who are in high positions. Why? So that they would not persecute the church. The church should not have to be concerned with running and escaping with their lives. They should be concerned with preaching the gospel, evangelism, teaching doctrine, teaching theology, baptizing new believers. The church should be concerned with fulfilling God's mandate. And if the government didn't persecute them, they'd have an easier time doing it. And also, Paul says, not only should we pray that they would not harass us, but we should also pray for their salvation. Ultimately, how does the persecution stop? By having those who are in high position come to saving faith. Paul says in verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, is Paul referring to the salvation of all people everywhere? Or is he referring to 
classes of people, types of people. Remember, he, he's told us, he, he mentioned kings and those who are in authority. Paul is not telling Timothy to get out the Ephesian phone book and start with the A's and just go all the way through and just pray for everyone. They wouldn't have time for anything else. But he is telling them to pray for all types of people. When you set the church up in Ephesus, pray for all types of people, Jews, Gentiles, men, women, children, slaves, slave masters, even kings and those who are in high position who can persecute you. Don't forget them. Why? Because God desires all people, all types of people from every class of men to come to saving faith. The reason why Paul includes kings and those who are in authority is because the church is normally persecuted by those who are in position of authority. Even today, the church receives most of her persecution from people who are in positions of authority. So it's easy to understand why the Apostle Paul would command Timothy to pray for those who are in positions of power. Because those who are in positions of power are more likely to abuse the church. But Paul is not meaning for Timothy to pray for every single person in the world, to pray for every single person by name for their salvation. That's not the purpose. Should we pray for everyone that we know? Absolutely. But that's not the context here. But that's the debate. When you get into the debate of Arminianism versus Calvinism, Arminians will go to this text. This is one of the major texts that they'll pull out and say, look, God desires for every single person to be saved because Paul says God desires for all people to be saved. And the Calvinists would say, no, Paul is referring in this particular instance to certain types of people. Paul's not commanding Timothy to pray for every single person in the world so that they can come to saving faith because that's what God desires. If God desired for every single person who ever lived, is living, and will live to be saved, if God was a universalist, trust me, God had the power to make that happen. God had sufficient grace. Jesus' death was sufficient for everyone. The possibility was there. But that is not what Paul is describing here. Me personally, I'm a firm believer that scripture interprets scripture. And we shouldn't have to inject our own personal opinions or biases into the text. We should let scripture speak for itself. So the question is, does scripture use this kind of language in other places? Meaning, does the scripture use the phrase all people to describe types of people or classes of people? And the answer is yes. Scripture does use the phrase all people not to refer to every single person who was living, is living, and will live, but to describe types of people like Jews and Gentiles, men, women, children. Those are types of people. And from out of those classes of people, God desires to save some. 
in Titus chapter 2, that's a, a perfect example of this. Paul lists several classes of people. In Titus chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about older women, uh, older men. In verse 3, he talks about older women. In verse 6, he mentions younger men. Verse 4, younger women. He talks about husbands and wives, children. And in verse 9, he even mentions slaves and masters. And he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And he mentions all these types of people. Slaves, slave masters, men, women, husbands and wives, children. All these types of people that God desires to save. And Paul's point is obvious. When it comes to salvation, God is not a respecter of social status. Meaning is that God is is not moved by outward appearance that he would want to save you. He saves who he wants from every single class. In Acts 22, another key text, the Apostle Paul is giving his testimony. Uh, The Roman Tribune has allowed Paul to defend himself. A group of Jews have falsely accused him of some crimes. In his defense, the Apostle Paul tells a story of his conversion when he met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. According to Paul, Jesus told him, you will be a witness for me to all men of what you have seen and heard. That's what Jesus told Paul. At the moment he was baptized by Ananias, Jesus said to Paul, you will be a witness of me to all men of what you've seen and what you've heard. Did Jesus mean all men as in every single person who was living? Did Jesus mean all men as in everyone in the world, universal men? Or did he mean all men as in only males? Maybe he means only males. Men is males. Maybe maybe Jesus says you're only going to preach the men. You're not going to preach the women. Or did Jesus mean all men as in all classes or types of men? Well, we know Paul didn't preach to Abraham. Uh, There are some men in the book of Acts that Paul refused to preach the gospel to because they were not deemed worthy to hear it. They were very vile and wicked men. So it can't be all humans. We know that Paul preached the gospel to women. So we know that the phrase all men doesn't mean just males. So it has to mean all types of men. And if we follow Paul's ministry, didn't he preach to all types of men? Didn't he preach to Jews? Didn't he preach to Gentiles, men and women and children? Didn't he preach to slave Onesimus? Didn't he preach to a slave owner, Philemon? Didn't he preach before kings, Agrippa? Before people who are in high positions, Caesar and Festus and Felix? He did. And that's why I have the confidence. Because scripture interprets scripture. That what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy chapter 1 or chapter 2, that God desires all men 
to come to saving faith, he means all types of men. And that's why we should pray for kings and those in authority. Normally, we would forget them because of the way they treat us. But Paul says you should pray for them too. Because from that group of men, God is going to save some. Basically, this debate is about universalism versus particular redemption. That's what this debate is about. Does God want every single person to be saved or does God only want a particular number of people to be saved? Arminians, they say God desires for all people to be saved. But because people, not all people are saved, they get in the way of God's plan. Well, hey, Arminian, if you believe all people, that God desires all people to be saved, why aren't all people saved? Well, because we frustrate God's plan. Because we get in the way of that. We're power, more powerful than God. Obviously, that's blasphemous. Blasphemous to think that. But the Calvinists believe, such as I am, that from the foundation of the world, God only elected a certain number of people to be saved. And the number God selected was not universal. It's only a certain number of people, and they are called the elect, the people of God, the saints, the church. And doesn't the Bible make a distinction between who God chooses and who God doesn't? The people that God chooses, they're called things like names like saints and the church, the holy ones, the righteous people, uh, the flock, the sheep. And on the other side, the people that or don't come to saving faith, they're called the wicked, destined for hell, the goats, uh, uh, the, those who weep and gnash when they're sent to hell. They're, it's like two different organisms. Because one, God has set his grace and his mercy and his love to, his face to, and the other people God has turned his back to. Universalism is a belief that God desires to save all people from their sins. That's what universalism is. And here's the problem with universalism. It's a belief closer to paganism than it is to Christianity. It is. Universalism will always lead to paganism. Let me explain. If when the Bible says, for God so loved the world, or Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. If the Bible means all people will be saved, if, that, if that's what the Bible means, when the Bible says, for God so loved the world, that that means every single person God wants to be saved. What they're saying is, is that there is no sin that is beyond the scope of Jesus's atonement. That's what they're saying. That's what it leads to. That's the natural, logical step. If you say God wants to save the whole world and all people will be saved because God desires all people to be saved, you are saying that there is no sin beyond the scope of Jesus' atonement. And if that's true, then even unbelief is forgiven. Even unbelief, which is a major sin. 
even unbelief is magically forgiven by God at the day of judgment. There's no threat of hell. Jesus' threats of hell shouldn't be taken seriously. In fact, Jesus will be found to contradict his own word. If universalism is true, so is paganism. And it leads to paganism. It leads to the belief that Jesus contradicted himself, that even unbelief will be forgiven by God in the last days. But on the other hand, I believe Calvinism protects and preserves God's teachings on hell. I believe Calvinism protects and preserves God's teaching on judgment. Since Calvinism teaches that God only saves a particular number of people, and these particular people are the ones who will have their sins forgiven by the atonement that Christ put forth, I have to reject that God desires all people to be saved. Universalism reduces the power of the atonement. With universalism, people are only potentially saved. They claim, well, you know, God does desire all people to be saved, but it's really up to that person to come to saving faith. That's works. If it was up to the person to come to saving faith, that's not saved by grace. That's saved by works. And and not to mention, it degrades the atonement. Because what if God did give the ability to humans to be saved? What if God does let the chance of being saved fall with us and Jesus dies on the cross but no one comes to faith because none of us want to then Christ dies for no purpose if God says you know what I'm going to send my son to this earth he's going to die on the cross for people's sins but I'm going to leave it up to the people that if they choose to be saved then I'll accept him. There is potential for no one to be saved in that scenario. There is potential for that. And therefore, there's potential for Jesus' atonement to be of no purpose. But the Calvinists will say, I believe that Jesus died for a certain number of people. And in their lifetime, those people will come to saving faith by the providence of God. You see the difference? Arminianism and universalism teach people are only potentially saved. Jesus did die on the cross, but it's up to you to believe. You have to do this. You have to do this. Where Calvinism teaches Jesus died on the cross for the elect to be saved. And they will come to God. God will draw them and they will come. They will be saved and they will never run the hazard of being anything but saved. Even the way that scripture describes Jesus' atonement supports the Calvinistic view of salvation. 
Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Again, the question is, is Paul saying that Jesus died on the cross for all people or for all types of people? And my answer is still the same. Jesus did not die on the cross for all people, for every single person. But Paul says Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all, for all types of people. And you have to understand the concept of a ransom for all. The phrase doesn't mean what people typically think it means. When Paul calls Jesus a ransom for all, he's describing Jesus as a substitute. The word ransom for all, that phrase means that Jesus died on the cross instead of or in the place of. And he can't, it can't refer to every single person who's ever lived because not all people are saved. If Jesus takes your place on the cross, if he injects himself in your place of punishment, I mean, think about it. That means you don't receive God's wrath. If Jesus and you take places, he takes your place of punishment. What does that mean? That means you take his place of glory. That means you receive his righteousness. You receive his justification. So if you believe that Jesus is a ransom for every single person who's ever lived and is living and will live, what you are essentially saying is that Jesus is taking their place of punishment. And if that's the case, they have no punishment to look forward to. And that means universalism would be true. But Jesus didn't die on the cross for all people. He died on the cross for all types of people. He died as a substitute for all classes of men. No type of person is left out. Did Jesus die for a rich man? Yes. Did he die for the poor? Yes. Did he die for men and women and children, the master and the slave? Yes. When we get to heaven, each of those classes of people will be represented. There'll be people from Jew, from the nation of the Jews, from the Gentile nations. There'll be poor and the rich. There'll be people of men and women and children, the master, the slave, Every type of class of person will be represented in heaven. Why? Because Jesus died on the cross for them. If you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a ransom for every single person and not every single person is ransomed, then you believe Jesus' atonement is a failure. It failed to do what it was purpose to do. If God's purpose was to have Jesus die on the cross for every single human and not every single human is saved, Jesus' atonement is a failure. Look at what Paul says in verse seven. 
He says, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The reason why, or rather the proof that God desires all types of men to be saved is because he called a Jew who used to be a persecutor of the church to be an apostle, to be a preacher, and he sent him to the Gentiles. If God didn't want all types of people to be saved, he would have never called Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. But he did because God desires all types of people, including Gentiles, to be saved. Will all Gentiles be saved? Of course not. Will all Jews be saved? No. Will all the rich, the poor, the men, the women, the children be saved? No. But God will save people from each of these classes of men. And that's why Timothy is to, first of all, pray for them. There are some Bible verses that teach about particular redemption. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Not all people, his people. John chapter 11 or John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. Verses 14 and 16, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as a father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 24 through 30. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the Father are one. Do you see what we mean by two separate people? You have the saved and the unsaved. The sheep are the saved. And Jesus tells the Jews, you're not part of my sheep. These particular Jews, these men that are asking him, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus says, I already told you. But you don't believe, why not? Because you're not among my sheep. The reason why you reject me, the reason why you reject the gospel, the reason why you don't follow after me is because you're not among my sheep. I'm a shepherd. The sheep follow me. You're not among the sheep. And I only give my life eternally for these sheep so that they will never perish. You will perish because you're not a part of my sheep. And John chapter 17 Verses 16 through 19, or 6 through 9. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. 
Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Jesus says, I'm not praying for everyone's salvation. I'm only praying for the people that you've given me. So what does all this mean for us? It should really mean that we would have great confidence in our salvation. Do you have faith in Christ? Yes, I do. Do you love Christ and do you worship Christ? Yes, I do. Have you received Jesus by faith alone? Yeah? Then you belong to him. You are a member of his sheep. He sought you when you were a stranger and he died on the cross in your place. He was a ransom for you. It's personal. It's your sins that he has forgiven. It is your life that has been redeemed by Christ. Particular redemption gives us great confidence that if we believe, if we have faith, if we love and worship God, then that is proof. If we are obedient to God and love his word and cherish his word, it is proof that we are selected by God for salvation, that Christ died on the cross for our sins and took away God's wrath from us. And we receive by faith the righteousness of Christ. Thanks for joining us. Next week, we'll finish 1 Timothy chapter 2.